2: Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 100 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. For quite a while now, Rich and I have wanted to do something on the music of the Civil War. And as we started to think about putting together something special for episode number 100 of the podcast, we both agreed it seemed a perfect opportunity for us to finally do a show featuring some of the songs that were popular during the war.
2: So a few months ago, we started to put together a wish list of the songs we wanted to have in the episode, and to find performances that we liked of the songs, and then to contact who all we needed to in order to secure permission to use those performances here on the podcast. And Tracy and I are very excited that we got permission to use all the songs on our wish list. So in this episode, we're going to be able to bring you over 20 songs that were popular during the Civil War on both the battlefronts and home fronts.
0: For most of the songs, what we'll do is talk a bit, or a lot, about why they were important during the war, and then we'll play a portion of each song so that you can get a good idea of what it sounds like.
2: For most of them, though, we won't play the whole song, since just playing a portion of it will give you a good idea of what it sounds like, and then you can go purchase the entire song for your own music library. Not only will that mean you have it then for yourself, but you getting a hold of the song will also be a nice way for you guys to help Tracy and I say thank you to all of these folks who so graciously gave us permission to use their recordings here on this episode of the podcast.
0: During the course of the show, we'll be sure to tell y'all the name of the song and the artist or band whose performance we're using, And we'll also post that information on the website and on Facebook. So after listening to this episode, you can go to either of those places and find a list of the songs and the artists and bands. And with almost every song, you can then find it and purchase it on iTunes or Amazon.com. And we're not working on commission or anything, but as Rich said, you purchasing the songs to have in your own music library will be a nice way to help us thank everyone who let us use these songs.
2: Music was everywhere during the Civil War, North and South, home front and battle front, inside parlors where families and friends gathered around pianos,
0: at political rallies where crowds assembled to show their support for the war,
2: in army camps where music was heard on the drill field and at night around campfires,
0: and even on battlefields where music was used to inspire the troops in the midst of the terrible fighting.
2: Music was everywhere during the Civil War. Tunes could be heard ringing out everywhere. During the war, there was a song for every mood and occasion. It was almost as if America was fighting a war with a musical soundtrack. In his book, Battle Hymns, The Power and Popularity of Music in the Civil War, Christian McWhorter writes, Although it was certainly a prominent part of northern and southern culture before 1861, the war catapulted music to a new level of cultural significance. More than mere entertainment, it provided a valuable way for Americans to express their thoughts and feelings about the conflict. Conversely, songs influenced the thoughts and feelings of civilians, soldiers, and slaves, shaping how they viewed the war. End quote.
0: It's estimated that between nine thousand and ten thousand and songs were published as sheet music during the Civil War. Songwriters and music publishers offered songs in response to almost every major event or development of the war. The very first of these songs was The First Gun is Fired, which was published in Chicago in April April 1861, only three days after the Confederate attack on Fort Sumter. Quoting from Christian McWhorter's book again, he explains that, established songwriters and amateurs alike received inspiration from the conflict that raged around them especially during the first two years of fighting. Many of their songs were original pieces, but several offered only new lyrics for existing tunes. Nor was this practice limited to pieces written before the Civil War. Civilians and soldiers frequently rewrote songs created during the conflict and shared their new lyrics with each other. Professional songwriters revised lyrics for particular occasions or to improve their quality. This trend was especially prevalent during the Civil War because neither section recognized each other's copyright laws. Although most of these pieces appeared only in newspapers, many were sold to publishers who printed them as sheet music in songbooks and in small pocketbooks called songsters.
2: As with our modern music market, Civil War-era Americans could choose from several genres of music. The most popular were patriotic, sentimental, minstrel, and religious songs. Patriotic music was especially popular during the first year or so of the conflict, and it was during that time that the war's most successful songs were produced. The initial rush of patriotism in both the North and the South, and the absence of an understanding of war's harsher elements, led many Americans to seek out songs that expressed their love of country, their military spirit, and their desire for victory. Although the United States of America didn't have an official national anthem when the Civil War started, there were already several popular patriotic American anthems at that time. In fact, in 1860, the United States had five nationally recognized unofficial anthems, Yankee Doodle, Hail Columbia, The Star-Spangled Banner, My Country Tis of Thee, and Columbia Gem of the Ocean. But once the war started, most Southerners rejected the old anthems, and songwriters in the Confederacy were inspired to create different different tunes that better represented the goals and beliefs of the new Southern slaveholding republic.
0: For Southerners, this was serious business, and so performing Confederate music became an important demonstration of allegiance to their new country. And so it's a bit paradoxical that the first patriotic anthem widely adopted by Confederates was written by a Northerner and was merely a minstrel ditty. The song hardly seemed a likely candidate to become a symbol of Southern nationalism and yet that's exactly what it became. We're speaking, of course, of Dixie. Its author, Daniel Emmett, was from Ohio. Performing in blackface, he created the first minstrel troupe in 1843, and so, not surprisingly, he became one of the most influential figures of the genre. In 1859, while Emmett was working in New York, he was asked by a minstrel troupe to write a snappy song for a large dance number called A Walk Around. He had only two days to write the piece. He said that in writing the song, he sought to be true to the, quote, crude ideas of the slaves. Their knowledge of the world at large was very limited. They could sing of nothing but everyday life or occurrences and the scenes by which they were surrounded, end quote. Daniel Emmett recalled that when Dixie was first performed, it became an immediate hit, and before the end of the week, everybody in New York was whistling it. <laughs> Dixie's Land, performed by the 2nd South Carolina String Band.
2: By the end of 1859, Dixie was one of the most popular songs in America. It was even played at the last White House party held by President James Buchanan. Dixie became the most popular song in the South, just as the region was severing its ties to the Union. Either undeterred or unaware of the song's origin, Confederates immediately made the song a patriotic symbol of their fledgling nation and then it became the Confederacy's de facto national anthem when it was performed during Jefferson Davis's inauguration in Montgomery, Alabama on February 18, 1861. The band leader in charge of the music at the inauguration, a German named Herman Arnold, played the song as Jefferson Davis made his way toward the Capitol and again as the Confederate flag was raised.
0: Although never officially designated as such, soon civilians and members of the press, both Northern and Southern, began acknowledging Dixie as the Confederacy's national anthem. The song was a favorite with Confederate soldiers. It had an undeniable melodic charm, and its rhythm was well-suited for marching. But it was more than that. Dixie comforted Confederate soldiers by reassuring them that they were fighting for their homes because they heard someone sing, In Dixie Land, I'll take my stand to live and die in Dixie. And then the song also reaffirmed the soldiers' belief that slavery was a benevolent, benign institution, since as a minstrel ditty, the song portrayed happy slaves who loved the South.
2: After Dixie, the most popular patriotic song of the Confederacy was The Bonnie Blue Flag, The bonnie-blue flag became so popular, in part, because of its writers' tireless efforts to push the song on Confederate soldiers. Songwriter and performer Harry McCarthy was born in England in 1834 and immigrated to the United States in 1849. In the 1850s, he began staging a comedic concerts in the South in which he impersonated different ethnic groups, especially African Americans and the Irish. By 1860, he had established a good reputation throughout the South and earned himself the nickname the Arkansas Comedian. According to Christian McWhorter in his book Battle Hymns, quote, McCarthy was in Jackson, Mississippi on January 9, 1861 and witnessed the state's secession convention. After Mississippi declared its independence, the president of the convention was given a blue flag with a white star and several witnesses cheered, hurrah for the bonnie blue flag inspired by the scene mccarthy wrote a new song that celebrated the confederate state and gave their reasons for seceding. setting his lyrics to the traditional tune the irish jaunting car he performed the song in jackson where it was well received mccarthy traveled all over the confederacy successfully promoting the bonnie blue flag soldiers were his primary audience and his stage performances of the song were designed to inspire them during a show at the New Orleans Academy of Music, a veteran of the 20th Tennessee recalled, Before the first verse was ended, the audience had gone wild, and hats by the hundreds were going in the air, End quote.
3: We are a band of brothers and native to the soil. Fighting for our liberty with treasure, blood, and toil And when our acts were threatened, the cry rose near and far Hurrah for the bonnet and flag that bears a single star. Hurrah, hurrah, for the rights! hurrah Hurrah, for the boy, hurrah. As long as the Union was faithful to her trust Like friends and like brethren, kind we were and just But now in old and treachery, attempts our acts to mar where life don't have a upon every flag that bears a single star
2: That was The Bonnie Blue Flag, performed by the 2nd South Carolina String Band. And just as an aside, but if you ever want to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that you're a Civil War history geek, the next time you hear The Bonnie Blue Flag, you can turn to someone and inform them that the third verse gets the order of secession wrong.
0: Another bit of trivia is that after the Federals occupied New Orleans in April 1862, Union General Benjamin Butler had all copies of The Bonnie Blue Flag destroyed and threatened to slap a fine of $25 on any man, woman, or child who was heard even whistling the tune.
2: And one final footno- footnote to the song is that although Harry McCarthy was perfectly happy to tour the South endlessly promoting The Bonnie Blue Flag, and boosting the popularity of his composition, he steadfastly avoided conscription into the Confederate Army by claiming British citizenship, and when the Southern cause seemed lost, he fled to Philadelphia in 1864.
0: The only song to rival the popularity of Dixie and the bonnie blue flag in the Confederacy was Maryland, My Maryland. In April 1861, James Ryder Randall, a native of the border state of Maryland, was teaching literature at a college in Louisiana when he heard the news that the 6th Massachusetts had been attacked by a secessionist mob in Baltimore, resulting in fatalities among both the soldiers and civilians. That night, April 23, 1861, he was inspired to compose a poem he entitled, My Maryland. The poem urged retribution for the deaths inflicted by the Yankee soldiers and then begged a female personified Maryland to ally herself with the Confederacy. After reading the poem to his students and receiving their encouragement, Randall submitted it to the New Orleans Delta newspaper. It was then published by other newspapers, and that's how two sisters in Baltimore who sang in a local glee club read it, realized it could be adapted to the tune of a popular college song, which in turn was based on an old German folk tune, Tannenbaum, O Tannenbaum, or Christmas Tree, O Christmas Tree. (laughs) ¶¶ Maryland My Maryland, performed by Bobby Horton.
2: The two sisters were eventually exiled from Baltimore by federal authorities. They went south and served as nurses for the Confederate Army. Through the sisters, rebel soldiers encamped around Manassas, Virginia learned of the song Maryland My Maryland, and when Confederate General P.G.T. Beauregard heard it performed, he ordered his staff to print copies of it to be distributed throughout the army. It was then picked up by several southern presses, and between the summers of 1861 and 1862, the song rivaled Dixie and the bonnie blue flag in popularity throughout the Confederacy. This was when Confederate anxiety over Maryland's possible secession was at its highest. The song reached the peak of its popularity in September 1862 with Robert E. Lee's invasion of Maryland that culminated with the Battle of Antietam. But the song declined in popularity after that, after Lee's army had found the citizens of Maryland were in reality decidedly less than excited about supporting the Confederate cause. The song's lyrics proclaim, Huzzah, she spurns the northern scum, she breathes, she burns, she'll come, she'll come, Maryland, my Maryland. But after Lee's army actually entered the state, a Confederate soldier reflected on those words and recorded how, quote, it didn't take us generals of the ranks very long to see that there was a mistake about it somewhere. She didn't come worth a cent. End quote.
0: It's interesting that Maryland, My Maryland is actually still the Maryland state song, even though it advocates secession, and actual Confederates were less than impressed with the state's enthusiasm for secession.
2: Yeah, that's pretty lame. Get a new state song, Maryland. Jeez.
0: Okay. Anyway, moving from Confederate patriotic songs to a sentimental song that was popular primarily with Southerners, that song was Lorena. It was actually published before the war in 1857. The song's theme of unrequited love was a subject common to sweetheart songs, but its melancholy melody resonated with Confederate soldiers. This song, beloved by Southern soldiers, was actually written by a Yankee, Reverend Henry D.L. Webster, who wrote the song in 1849 in Massachusetts. Webster had been jilted by a gal named Ella Bloxam, who chose a well-to-do lawyer over the preacher. But Webster still, pining for Ella years later, poured out his heart in a poem, and to protect her identity, he chose the name Lorena. The poem ended up being set to music, and it was published as Sheet Music in Chicago in 1857.
2: So, like Dixie, Lorena was another song written by a Northerner that was beloved by Confederates. It was reprinted in at least nine different pirated editions in the South, and virtually every pocket songster carried by Confederate soldiers included the sentimental ballad. Supposedly, one rebel officer went so far as to ban the song, because he thought it inspired such homesickness among the troops that it caused desertion rates to rise. Another Confederate soldier remembered that he heard Lorena more than any other song during the war. Here's Lorena, performed by the 2nd South Carolina String Band. (laughs) ¶¶
3: Slowly by the rain, the snow is on the grass again. The suns blow down the sky, the rain, the frost gleams where the flowers have been. But the heart throbs on as warmly now as when. The summer days were nigh. Oh, the sun can never dip so low. A down affections cloud the sky. Oh, the sun
4: can never dip
3: so low.
0: Naturally enough, for a period gripped by tragedy, there were plenty of melancholy songs, but the Civil War also had its share of rollicking, fun tunes. One Confederate hero who was known far and wide for his love of festive music was Jeb Stuart. When Stuart and his cavalry were in camp, rarely did a night pass without a dance or other musical event. And Stuart's Prussian-born chief of staff, Major Eros von Borka, said that the general usually insisted that the parties close with the spirited chorus of the song, Join the Cavalry.
3: If you wanna have a good time, join the cavalry, join the cavalry, join the cavalry. You wanna catch a devil, if you wanna have fun, if you wanna smell hell, join the cavalry. And Went around the and went around the claylion. We're the boys, went around the claylion, bully boys, hey, bully boys. Ho. If you wanna have a good time, join the cavalry, join the cavalry, join the cavalry. You wanna catch a devil? If you wanna have fun, if you wanna smell
5: hell, join the cavalry. We're
3: Cross the Potomacum, cross the Potomacum, cross the Potomacum, we're the boys. who we'll Cross the Potomacum, bully boys, hey, Bully boys, ho. If you want to have a good time, join the cavalry, join the cavalry, join the cavalry. You want to catch a devil if you want to have fun, if you want to smell hell.
0: That was Join the Cavalry, performed by Hardtack and Harmony. Confederate
2: soldiers had two popular songs about rations. The quantity and quality of army food has probably been griped about by soldiers since the beginning of time, but the long-suffering southern soldiers during the Civil War certainly had a right to complain about poor rations. Their favorite tune in this regard was An Ode to Peanuts. The precise origins of the song Goober Peas are unknown, but it was widely sung in the ranks of Confederate armies. The hungry rebel soldiers were especially fond of the chorus because they could vent their frustrations with the quartermaster by shouting, peas, 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 eating Goober peas, goodness how delicious, eating Goober peas.
3: Sitting on the roadside on a summer's day Chatting with my messmates, passing time away Lying in the shadows underneath the tree Goodness how delicious, eating Goober Peas Peas, 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 peas eating Goober Peas Goodness how delicious, eating Goober Peas Peas, 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 peas eating Goober Peas Goodness, how delicious, eating goober peas. When a horseman passes the soldiers have a brew. The pry at their loudest, mister, hears you knew But another pleasure, enchanting than these, is wearing out your grinders, eating goober peas. peas. Peas, 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 eating goober peas. Goodness, how delicious, eating goober peas. Peas, 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 peas eating goober peas.
2: Delicious, Peas. That was Goober Peas performed by Hardtack and Harmony.
0: The other popular Confederate selection with regard to food was the song Short Rations, which was written by a member of the Army of Tennessee during the Atlanta campaign. The song begins by snidely attacking all classes of society outside the army and then goes on to describe how the miseries of camp life and campaigning are made worse by the imposition of half-rations. The song suggests that even the ancient Spartans may have eaten better than the Confederate soldiers. Here's Short Rations, performed by Bobby Horton.
6: Fair ladies and maids of all ages Little girls and cadets, however youthful, Home guards, quartermasters, and sages, Who write for the newspapers so truthful, work surgeons, and soups, legislators, Staff officers, fox of the nation, And even you, dear speculators, Come and list to my song of starvation. Our bugles had roused up the camp. The heavens looked dismal and dirty And the earth looked unpleasant and damp As a pole on the wrong side of 30 We were taking these troubles with quiet When we heard from the mouths of some rash ones That the army was all put on a diet And the board had diminished our rations For we soldiers have seen something rougher then a storm may retreat or a fight, and the body may coil on and suffer with a smile so the heart is alright.
1: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money.
2: With the Union's armies, the favorite song about food was Hard Crackers, Come Again No More. The parody seems to have originated with the first Iowa in 1861, but it voices very real complaints by the rank-and-file federal soldiers. The tune comes from the 1854 Stephen Foster number Hard Times, Come Again No More. Hard Crackers, or Hard Tack, was a brutally hard cracker that was issued to the Federals, and it was dangerous to the teeth and exhausting to the jaw. Even if crumbled in coffee or fried in grease, it wasn't exactly tasty, and it was susceptible to mold and occasionally to weevils and maggots. Here's Hard Crackers Come Again No More, performed by the 2nd South Carolina String Band.
3: Close our game of poker, take our tin cups in our hand while we gather around the cook's tent door. Where dry mummies of hard crackers are given to each man. Oh, hard crackers come again no more. Tis the song, the sigh of stomach sore oh hard crackers come again no more
0: we've already mentioned lorena as an example of the sentimental genre of music that was popular during the war in battle hymns mcworder writes that quote The war occurred in a period dominated by Romanticism and Victorian sentimentalism. As a result, many songs emphasized the human feeling and emotion of the Romantics, but also shared the Victorian focus on family, especially on mothers. These sentimental songs tended to have slower, often meandering melodies, and sometimes contained only a limited chorus or none at all. They were typically within the ballad tradition, telling stories, usually tragic, that dealt with love, separation, death, or all three. If the patriotic songs helped Americans justify and describe the war, sentimental songs helped them cope with the emotions stirred up by the conflict. Quote.
2: McWhorter goes on to explain that sentimental music of the Civil War era could be further divided into four subcategories. Home songs, sweetheart songs, mother songs, and death songs, all expressing the common theme of separation. Lorena was obviously an example of a sweetheart song, and we mentioned it was written before the war. But of the love songs composed during the war, by far the most popular in both the North and the South was Weeping Sad and Lonely, or When This Cruel War Is Over, which was written by Charles Carroll Sawyer. In the piece, Sawyer portrayed two lovers promising to reunite after the war and acknowledging each other's wartime duties as citizens.
3: Dearest love.
2: That was, Weeping Sad and Lonely, or When This Cruel War Is Over, performed by Bobby Horton. So, Lorena and Weeping Sad and Lonely are examples of sweetheart songs, but here in the next few moments we'll provide examples of the other categories of sentimental songs as well.
0: Just Before the Battle Mother, written by Chicago-based George Frederick Root, was one of the most, if not the most, popular mother songs in the sentimental genre. While mother songs were popular among soldiers of both sides, their primary audience was women who were comforted by their belief that their soldier's sons were coping with the hardships and brutality of war by thinking of their mothers. Here's Just Before the Battle, Mother, performed by Bobby Horton. <music>
3: me lying, filled with thoughts of home and God. For well, they know that on the morrow, some will sleep beneath the sun. Farewell,
0: Surprisingly, considering that more than 600,000 soldiers lost their lives during the conflict, there was a large group of Civil War songs about death. These songs typically describe supposedly true scenes of soldiers dying on battlefields. A large number centered on the soldier's last words of devotion to his family or country.
2: One of the most popular death songs of the war was All Quiet Along the Potomac, Tonight which presents a bleak portrayal of war by describing the death of a picket from a random bullet. Like those of many other dying soldiers in music, his last thoughts are of his sweetheart back home. All Quiet Along the Potomac's most popular musical setting was published in 1863, and like other songs in this category produced in the last two years of the war, it represented the growing war-weariness of Americans during the latter stages of the terrible conflict.
3: The light of the campfires are gleaming. A tremulous sigh as the gentle night wind through the forest leaves slowly is creeping. While the stars up above with their glittering eyes keep guard over the army while sleeping. There's only the sound of the lone sentry's tread. As he tramps from the rock to the fountain And he thinks of the two on the low trundle bed Far away in the cotton mountain His mercy falls slack, his face dark and grim Rose gentle when memories tender. As he mutters a prayer for the children asleep and their mother, may heaven defender, all quiet along, the made to may tonight. Then, drawing his sleeve roughly over his eyes, he dashes off tears that are welling. His gun up to his breast, as if to keep the heart swing. He a fountain, the pantry, and his is lagging...
2: That was all quiet along the Potomac tonight, performed by Bobby Horton.
0: Another song that gained in popularity as war weariness increased was When Johnny Comes Marching Home, which perfectly conveyed the feelings of wives and mothers waiting for the return of their husbands and sons. Here's When Johnny Comes Marching Home, performed by the 2nd South Carolina String Band.
5: (laughs) ¶¶
3: Party, welcome them! Hurrah, hurrah! The boys will cheer and the men will shout and the ladies they will all turn out and we'll all feel gay when Johnny comes marching. The old church bell will tear with joy, hurrah, hurrah! Welcome home, our darling boy, hurrah!
2: by far the most popular home song of the civil war and arguably the most popular song of the war was Home Sweet Home. Written in 1823, the piece was a great favorite even before the Civil War, but it rose to new heights of popularity during the war, when millions of soldiers found themselves far from home and loved ones, and Home Sweet Home served as a potent reminder of what they had left behind. One veteran said the song, quote, always went most directly to the soldier's heart, end quote. And indeed, the soldiers of both sides often sang it because it perfectly expressed their desire to escape the hardships of the war and return to their families. Many observers noted the piece's ability to make soldiers cry, including a Confederate who recorded how, whenever it was sung, quote, many a rough soldier who weeps not for wounds or blood dashes a tear from the eye, end quote.
0: Probably the most famous of the stories told about the song Home Sweet Home took place at Fredericksburg, Virginia in December 1862, as the two opposing armies faced each other across the Rappahannock River. In the evenings, the opposing side's bands would often engage in musical duels, each playing tunes, particularly patriotic ones, with as much volume and enthusiasm as they could muster. But one evening, toward the end of one such contest, a federal band began to play Home Sweet Home. As the Federals played, a Confederate band took it up, and before long, other regimental bands in both armies joined in. All across the battlefront, on both sides of the river, everyone ceased what they were doing as the slow, plaintive notes floated through the air. There wasn't a sound, except for the music.
2: According to a Confederate soldier from South Carolina, when the song was over, Quote, "Everyone went crazy. End quote. He had never witnessed anything like it before. Rebels and Yankees started cheering at the tops of their lungs, throwing their hats in the air, and jumping up and down. The South Carolinians said that if the river hadn't been between them, he believed the two armies would have met face to face, shaken hands, and ended the war on the spot.. <laughs>
3: from home splendor dazzles in vain oh give me my lowly thatched cottage again the birds singing gayly that came at my call give me And that peace of mind Dearer than all
5: Home Home Sweet, sweet
3: home There's no
2: Home Sweet Home, performed by the 2nd South Carolina String
0: Band. Home Sweet Home helped soldiers anticipate their homecoming, and When Johnny Comes Marching Home, described the joy and reunion after the return of husbands and sons. But, but at the war's end in 1865, the most popular homecoming song was George Frederick Root's Tramp, Tramp, Tramp. The piece depicted imprisoned soldiers pining for their return home and reunion with loved ones. Root first published the song in Chicago in 1864, but it acquired new significance in the early spring of 1865, when it became apparent that the war was going to be coming to an end. By July 1865, the song had sold 100,000 copies.
4: In the prison cell I sit, thinking, Mother, dear, of you, and our bright and happy house so far away. And the tears they fill my eyes in spite of all that I can do Though I try to cheer my comrades and be gay Tramp, 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 the boys are marching Cheer up, comrades, they will come And beneath the starry flag we shall breathe the air again Of the free land in our own beloved home in the battle front we stood When their fiercest charge they made And they swept us off a hundred men or more But before we reached their lines They were beaten back, dismayed And we heard the cry of victory o'er and o'er Tramp, 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 the boys are marching Cheer of comrades, they will come and beneath the starry flag, we shall breathe the air again of a free land in our own beloved home. So within the prison cell, we are waiting
0: for... That was Tramp, 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 performed by Tom Glazier. Tramp, Tramp, Tramp was even heard in the Confederacy, and a southern version was published with additional verses depicting the soldier fighting under Lee at Gettysburg and shouting the rebel yell.
2: After their homecoming, one of the veterans' backward-looking sentimental favorites was the song, Tenting on the Old Camp Ground. It was written in 1863 by Walter Kittredge. After being drafted into the Union Army in 1863, Kittredge wrote the piece that depicted soldiers in camp thinking about their loved ones at home and wishing the war was over. In the chorus, the soldiers declared that they were looking for the right to see the dawn of peace. And the third verse began with a lament, "We are tired of war on the old campground. Many are dead and gone) <laughs>
3: Many are the hearts that are weary tonight, wishing for the war to sweet. Many are the hearts that are looking for the right. Tenting night On the old campground Thinking of days gone by Of the loved ones at home That gave us the hand And the are looking for the right
2: Tenting on the Old Campground, performed by the 2nd South Carolina String Band.
0: Kittredge's description of soldiers camped together, with their ranks gradually thinning, was perfectly suited to post-war veterans' gatherings. And so while the song saw limited success during the war itself, afterward it became immensely popular, especially at Grand Army of the Republic functions. (laughs)
2: While a Civil War soldier would turn to his memories of home for comfort, he also often turned his thoughts and prayers to God when seeking consolation and solace for his spirit in the midst of the hardship and brutality of war. Soldiers of both sides collected and sang hymns. Several veterans claimed that hymns were more popular than patriotic or sentimental songs. Chaplains and religious organizations distributed hymnals and religious songsters. Most soldiers were happy to receive them and frequently wrote home asking for more. According to one soldier in a Virginia regiment, quote, Every evening for miles around, you might hear thousands of voices singing hymns, many singing for their own gratification, but many others through a sort of religious feeling of their own, thinking that this is the most convenient way of manifesting it. End quote.
0: The favorite hymns in the camps of both armies were those old songs endowed with significance by associations with home and childhood. Ranking high in soldier esteem were such hymns as Amazing Grace, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name, On Jordan's Stormy Banks I Stand, and How Firm a Foundation. But perhaps no other hymn was more popular with soldiers during the war than Nearer My God to Thee. Soldiers of both sides turned to the hymn to bolster their faith as they coped with the dreariness of camp life and faced the perils of battle. That was Near My God to Thee, performed by Chip Mergott.
2: Christian McWhorter, in his book Battle Hymns, The Power and Popularity of Music in the Civil War, writes that, quote, Although Civil War soldiers and civilians used music effectively and often, no one better understood its power than African Americans. With widespread illiteracy, a fact of slave life, oral transmission of information was vital. Blacks knew that plain talk about freedom and equality would surely meet with harsh disapproval or worse, from white listeners, but song lyrics, couched in religious imagery, were acceptable and even endearing to whites. With the onset of the war, African Americans shifted into life as contrabands, soldiers, and eventually free citizens— and gradually abandoned the coded language in their songs to express themselves more directly, end quote.
0: Music had long been an important part of slave culture. Spirituals and shouts could be heard as slaves sang to pass the time in the fields and set the pace of their work. Although whites typically perceived this singing as evidence of contentment, many slave songs described the hardship of their life and longing for freedom. These sentiments were often expressed in biblical metaphors. A perfect example of this is the slave spiritual Go Down Moses, which explicitly compared enslaved southern blacks to the Israelites suffering in captivity under Pharaoh. Early in the war, as northern whites first came into contact with large numbers of escaped slaves, they noticed the contrabands would frequently sing the song, which expressed their religious conviction and desire for freedom.
6: Israel was in Egypt's land, let my
3: people go, oppressed so hard
6: they could not stand.
0: was Go Down Moses performed by Paul Robson.
2: A song published in Chicago in eighteen sixty two that became immensely popular with contrabands and African American Union soldiers was Kingdom Coming. Written by Henry Clay Work, Kingdom Coming was crafted as a minstrel song, but had the advantage of meaning different things to different listeners. Its description of slaves taking over the plantation after their master fled the Lincoln gunboats could be viewed as a comic scene by minstrel audiences, but also carried a clear abolitionist meaning for those who cared to hear it. Unlike blacks in most minstrel songs, the slaves in Kingdom Coming clearly resented their master and wanted to be free.
5: One, two, three...
3: Seen the master with the mustache on his face coming down the road sometime this morning, like it wants to leave the place. He seen the smoke way up the river where the Lincoln gunboats lay. He grabbed his hat and he very sudden and a specky run away. The master, ha ha, the darkest day, stay ho, they must be. And 300 pounds. His coat's so big he couldn't bend the tailor, and it don't go halfway around. He drills so much they call him Captain, and he gets so dreadful tan. I expect he'll try to fool them, Yanks, but I think he's contraband. The master of the darkest day, ho ho. It must
2: That was Kingdom Coming, performed by the 2nd South Carolina String Band.
0: Music played an important role in emancipation celebrations that were held on January 1, 1863, the day that the provisions of Abraham Lincoln's historic Emancipation Proclamation went into effect. One such celebration, held at Camp Saxton near Port Royal, South Carolina, was organized and run by white military officers and teachers. During the proceedings, the organizers expected the 1,000 contrabands gathered for the ceremony to remain silent, but the blacks took the opportunity to express their own thoughts on freedom and their patriotic feelings for a union without slavery, and they did it in a very moving and powerful way, by using a song.
2: As planned, the Emancipation Proclamation was read, speeches were made, but then, as abolitionist minister turned soldier, Thomas Wentworth Higginson took the platform to continue with the proceedings, he heard, quote, a strong male voice from one of the black observers, into which two women's voices instantly blended, singing as if by an impulse that could no more be repressed than the morning note of the song sparrow, End quote. What Higginson heard was, my country tis of thee sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Soon all the contrabands joined in the singing of my country 'tis tis of thee, but when the white teachers began to sing, Higginson ordered them to stop, saying, leave it to them. The blacks' gesture was all the more significant and moving since none of the whites had heard the contrabands sing the song before. The blacks had mastered the song in secret and waited to perform it on emancipation day. Awed by the performance, Higginson refused to give his speech, saying that the singing was quote, more eloquent than the poor words any man could utter, end quote. That was My Country Tis of Thee, performed by the United States Air Force Heritage of America Band.
0: That last song provides a nice transition to the next section of the episode, where we'll look at some of the patriotic songs of the Union. As we mentioned earlier in the show, the Confederates scorned the old patriotic anthems, but their rejection of those songs only increased northern reverence for them. The traditional anthem that benefited most from this was the Star-Spangled Banner, because the war fostered so many public displays of devotion to the flag. But besides providing a boost to the old patriotic anthems, the conflict also inspired northern songwriters to craft new pieces focused on the war's meaning and events. By the beginning of 1863, two of those new tunes had achieved such popularity and success that they had firmly established themselves as the Norse' leading patriotic songs. They were John Brown's Body and The Battle Cry of Freedom.
2: During the Civil War, it's no exaggeration to say that John Brown's Body was the Union's unofficial national anthem. It enjoyed astounding popularity, especially among northern soldiers. The song seemed to pop up out of thin air soon after the start of the war, but in reality, its origin can be traced to April 1861 and the 2nd Massachusetts Infantry Battalion. One member of the battalion was a Scottish sergeant named John Brown. Although he was a favorite of the men, according to Christian McWhirter, quote, Sergeant Brown's sharing of his name with the famous abolitionist martyr was often fodder for jokes. As one member recalled, if Sergeant Brown was ever late for roll, the other men would make wisecracks, such as, Come on, old fellow, you ought to be at it if you are going to help us free the slaves. Or, This can't be John Brown. Why, John Brown is dead. A statement confirming abolitionist Brown was, in fact, deceased usually followed these comments, along with the remark that his body lies moldering in the grave. End quote.
0: It wasn't long before two members of the battalion's glee club transformed the popular revival song, Say Brothers Will You Meet Us on Canaan's Happy Shore, into a new version teasing Sergeant Brown about his name. The new song, John Brown's Body, quickly became a favorite with the men, not least because its steady rhythm was so well suited to marching, and the words were easy to remember. In July 1861, after the 12th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment absorbed the battalion, the unit marched through New York City on its way to the front. The Bay Staters sang John Brown's Body as they marched down Broadway, and it left a lasting impression on the civilian crowd watching the scene. One soldier recalled, quote, "...it's no exaggeration to say that the thousands of people who lined Broadway were fairly electrified by its stirring strains." Heard by them for the first time.
4: John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. His soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah His soul is marching on The stars of heaven are a-looking kindly down The stars of heaven are a-looking kindly down The stars of heaven are a-looking kindly down On the grave of old John Brown Glory, glory, hallelujah, glory, glory, hallelujah, glory, glory, hallelujah, his soul is marching on. He's going to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. He's going to be a soldier in the army
0: That was John Brown's Body, performed by Tom Glazier.
2: Almost immediately after the song was heard in New York, two major transformations occurred. The first was the addition of another verse, which included the popular line, We'll hang Jeff Davis to a sour apple tree, which was reported to be sung by the soldiers with particular gusto. The second transformation happened as the song lost its original meaning and context. Not surprisingly, when northern civilians and soldiers heard the song, they thought not of old Sergeant John Brown, but of the radical abolitionist, and the song took on an anti-slavery tone. Although the Union soldiers rarely commented on the song's meaning, it was their most popular anthem during the war, and they certainly understood its abolitionist implications.
0: Most northern soldiers, especially early in the war, were not abolitionists, and although some may have embraced the song simply because its subject matter annoyed the rebels, others, however, understood that emancipation was a significantly important component of the war to save the Union, and they came to sympathize with Brown and his cause through the new patriotic hymn.
2: And then there is, of course, the famous story of how Julia Ward Howe, in December 1861, wrote new lyrics to John Brown's body, and transformed the song into the Battle Hymn of the Republic,
6: As loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift
3: sword, his truth is marching on.
2: Republic, performed by Bobby Horton.
0: It's interesting that while Julia Ward Howe's revision is still popular today, and John Brown's body is hardly known, during the Civil War, the Battle Hymn of the Republic never came close to replacing the popularity of the original version. For the rank and file Union soldier, Howe's lyrics were too complex to easily recall, and so John Brown's body remained their favorite patriotic song throughout the war and the Battle Hymn of the Republic only began its rise to prominence after the conflict was over.
2: The only real rival to John Brown's body's claim as the most popular northern patriotic song during the war was George Frederick Root's The Battle Cry of Freedom. Root was inspired to write the song by Abraham Lincoln's call for 300,000 volunteers on July 2, 1862. The song spread quickly after that because its lyrics were easy to remember, its rhythmic melody appealed to marching soldiers, and it could be sung without difficulty in parlors as friends and family gathered around pianos. In fact, while John Brown's body remained the Union soldiers' favorite song throughout the war, Root's piece became the most popular tune with northern civilians. Demand for the sheet music of the Battle Cry of Freedom was so great that occasionally every press in Root's Chicago publishing house would be put to use just filling orders for as many as 20,000 copies. By the end of the war, several hundred thousand copies of the sheet music had sold. Here's The Battle Cry of Freedom, performed by the 2nd South Carolina String Band. (laughs) ¶¶
3: Lord. Oh.
0: The Norse third most popular patriotic song during the war was, We Are Coming Father Abraham, 300,000 More. It was originally written as a poem by a Quaker, James Sloan Gibbons. Like Root, Gibbons also found inspiration in Abraham Lincoln's July 1862 call to arms. His poem first appeared in the New York Daily Post on July 16, 1862, and quickly spread across the country, even reaching California the following month. Several songwriters recognized the poem's musical potential, and at least six set the words to music. However, the version by Luther Emerson became the most famous. We Are Coming Father Abraham, 300,000 More Performed by Bobby Horton
2: Aside from those top three a few other patriotic songs attained some degree of success in the North but none of the other runners-up rivaled the late war popularity of a song written by Henry Clay Work called Marching Through Georgia
5: Hoorah,
3: hoorah We bring the Jubilee Hoorah, hoorah the flag that makes you free So we sang the chorus From Atlanta to the sea While we were Marching through Georgia Bring the good old bugle boy, we'll sing another song Sing it with the spirit That will move the world along Sing it as we used to Sing it 50,000 strong While we were Marching through Georgia makes you free, so we sang the chorus from Atlanta to the sea, while we were marching through Georgia. Yes, and there were union men who wept with joyful tears when they saw the honored flight they had not seen for years. Hardly could they be refrained from breaking forth in cheers, while we were marching through Georgia. Hoorah! We bring the jubilee. Hoorah! Hoorah! The flag that makes you free. So we sang the chorus from Atlanta to the sea while we were marching through Georgia.
2: That was Marching Through Georgia, performed by Hardtack and Harmony.
0: Appearing in February 1865, Marching Through Georgia became the North's leading victory anthem. While it obviously was a celebration of Sherman's campaign from Atlanta to Savannah, it also told Northerners how to interpret the Union victory. Georgia was not left in ruins, but was transformed into a thoroughfare of freedom. Sherman's bummers didn't ransack the countryside, but were deliverers for slaves and Southern Unionists. The chorus presented the war as primarily an exercise in emancipation. Although Marching Through Georgia only appeared in the last months of the conflict, it became one of the most popular songs of the war and continued to sell throughout the rest of the 19th century, eventually selling over half a million copies.
2: While most of the songs we've talked about in this episode could have just as easily been heard in someone's parlor, or at a political rally, or in an army camp, there was one type of music that was unique to the military of both sides, and those were the calls played by the army field musicians. Especially early in the war, many regiments in both armies had their own bands, and these brass bands would have serenaded the soldiers with many of the songs that we've discussed. But then, besides the regimental bands, there were the field musicians, the buglers, drummer boys, and fifers, who were responsible for playing the military calls that regulated every aspect of army life.
0: The lives of Union and Confederate soldiers were governed by the sounds of the bugles, fifes, and drums played by the field musicians. Camp calls were used at specific times of the day to summon soldiers to their duties. These sounded daily whether the men were in camp, garrison, or bivouac. Skirmish calls, on the other hand, govern the movements and actions of the troops on both the drill field and the battlefield. Camp and skirmish calls could be played by bugle, drum, or fife.
2: A camp's commanding officer designated the specific hours when camp calls were sounded. The first calls began around sunrise, and the final calls occurred by 9 or 10 p.m., The first call was Reveille, and the last call was lights out. Most Civil War buffs have heard the story of how Union General Daniel Butterfield, one night in July of 1862, called his brigade bugler to his tent. Butterfield, so the story goes, was dissatisfied with the regulation call from Hardy's tactics manual used at the end of the day to order the men to extinguish lights, so he had scratched his own tune on the back of an envelope and summoned his bugler to sound the new call. The two made some adjustments, changing some notes, and that evening the call known today as Taps sounded for the first time.
0: But according to an article titled The True Story of Taps in the August 1993 issue of Blue and Gray magazine, that familiar oft-told story is simply not true. The authors of the article, Joseph Whitney and Stephen Sears, looked into the matter and discovered that the earliest version of the call that can be positively identified as taps is in an 1836 tactics manual. There it shows up as the second half of the infantry tattoo call, which at that time was the last call of the day. They also found a second example in an 1861 manual called the United States Regulation Drum and Fife Instructor. In that manual is the earliest known example of the name Taps being specifically associated with the call to extinguish lights.
2: The story of Daniel Butterfield inventing the melody for Taps in that army camp in July of 1862 appears to be just that, a story, but we can credit him for heading the post-war army board that for the first time in American military history standardized the official manuals for the Fife, Drum, and Bugle which guaranteed that taps would be the official army call for lights out. Had he not done that, perhaps no one today would recognize one of the most beautiful evocative trumpet calls, and we would all be the poorer for that. was TAPS, performed by the United States Marine Band, the President's Own.
0: Robert E. Lee once famously told the band of the 26th North Carolina, quote, I don't believe we can have an army without music, end quote. When Lee said that, he wasn't just whistling Dixie. Music was a quintessential part of soldier life during the Civil War, and music also was a major rallying point for civilians on the home fronts. In both the North and the South, soldiers and civilians placed music at the center of their wartime experiences and used songs in a variety of ways.
2: With this episode, we wanted to show that during the Civil War, music was much more than background noise. People wrote and performed songs to express themselves and to influence others. Songs helped soldiers and civilians understand their personal relationship to the war and express their reactions to it. And since this often happened in the context of a communal musical experience, the music's impact was all the more powerful. But during the Civil War, music didn't simply play a role in allowing Americans to express their thoughts and feelings about the conflict. It went beyond that, becoming an important tool in shaping how soldiers, civilians, and slaves viewed the war.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and you probably won't be surprised that our recommendation this time is Battle Hymns The Power and Popularity of Music in the Civil War by Christian McWhorter.
2: As you can probably tell, Tracy and I relied heavily on McWhorter's book while putting together this episode, and we really can't recommend it highly enough if you're interested in delving more deeply into this fascinating subject. As always, you can find Battle Hymns and all of our other book recommendations by going to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com.
0: And just a reminder that if you go to the website, you'll also be able to find a list of all the songs we used in this episode, as well as who performed them.
2: We'll also put that information up on Facebook. And while you're on Facebook, don't forget to like the podcast, We're dangerously close to breaking 800 likes, which will be pretty cool.
0: You can also follow us on Twitter, where each day, or most days, we're still following what happened during the war 150 years ago on that date. We also use Twitter to share interesting Civil War-related news or articles that we think y'all might like.
2: And so uh, looking ahead, I know Tracy is looking forward to the next topic we're set to cover on the podcast, since it's a battle that took place just a stone's throw from her hometown of Fayetteville, Arkansas. Woohoo! And that's the Battle of Pea Ridge. So that'll be next time. Uh, but before we wrap up this show, we just want to remind you guys that the music we use at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water by Spiritwood Music. And Tracy and I owe these folks a debt of gratitude, because when we were first getting all of this going, we contacted them and said, hey, we like your song, can we use it on a Civil War podcast that we're starting? And they said, yeah, sure. So, when you're purchasing some of the songs in this episode for your music library, please also consider checking out Spiritwood Music stuff. It's really great. And with the holidays coming up, you might be interested to know that they have some lovely traditional Christmas music that's guaranteed to make you feel more festive. Okay, that's all.
0: Thanks for listening to episode number 100 of the Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Rich and I hope you'll join us again next time for the Battle of Pea Ridge. But until then, take care.
2: Thanks, everyone. Bye.